buongiorno, buon pomeriggio e buonasera. Chi avrebbe mai pensato che saremo arrivati qui? Who ever thought we'd get here episode 21 of The Way It Is, official Bobby Galinsky podcast? 21. 21. It is down to 9 degrees here. Raining, cold, miserable, lockdown, can't go outside, can't go 5Ks. Who'd want to go five feet out the door right now? And are you feeling weird? Are you feeling, hmm, what's different about this show? Well, you know what's different, according to Mystic Medusa? It's Mars, square Pluto, and then Saturn. This is good for clear thinking, tactical planning, and the discipline of distinguishing between what is within your current control and what is not. Being enterprising and reinventive, that's why you're feeling vibed up. But this week's energy is not good for escalating situations. That would be better just to have an exit strategy for. No statement gestures, roll tomatoes you can't follow on. And don't engage with volatile people or getting in fights you don't have to be in. See, normally I save that for later in the show, but I've kind of figured out that some kind of people hear the whole show and they absolutely love it. And then there's a few non-believers or um, Satan worshipers that uh, have not been able to separate astrology from astronomy from the other sciences and Kepler physics. And then they just think, oh, what's that about? So I thought I'd turn it upside down this week and give you the vibe now, give you the vibe straight away. So if you understand the vibe, you're in it for this show. And if you don't, you got it out of the way. You don't have to dread it and freak out and go, oh God, when's that coming? Because I know there's like 11 people out there that don't trust Mystic Medusa like I do. Now, I hope you enjoyed that Italian. We had 11 new listeners from Italy this past week. Very exciting. And I'm Hosing into my 200th straight day with Duolingo on my Italian. Getting a bit excited. Maybe in the next 11 billion years, I'll be able to travel back to Italy with my lovely wife and uh, practice it a bit. I'm hoping so. Absolutely hoping so. We have an eclectic show today. We have our second in the interview series that... Um, started way back in March, with a fantastic, wonderful person and an amazing artist, and that's uh, Richard Payne. Usually, as you know, it's play the man, not the ball. So I like to talk about amazing artists, whether they're filmmakers or actors or actresses or directors or singers or sports people or anybody that's a great creative. But usually, these days, I'm sorry to say... They're fucked up people. I mean, they just... <laughs> you just, you know, would you have that person at your house? That messes up my dinner party exercise. If you don't know what the dinner party exercise is, you need to look up previous shows. But I play the man or woman, not the ball. I love the skills and talents. And then if they're just kind of a bad person, then, you know, that's all right appreciate the good. But this guy is not only an astonishing talent, but he's a fantastic person, a mensch, as we would say. So we'll be getting into him. We'll, we'll be getting into him. We'll be listening to him uh, in just a couple minutes. And a uh, little bit of transparency. 
The interview was pre-recorded for a variety of reasons. One, so we don't have any glitches because I hate to look like a fool and I can edit glitches, although I didn't really have to touch up much of this at all. And two, just a little bit of sound quality and mixing and things like that, courtesy of the beautiful people at Zencaster. So um, we're entering the second week of lockdown down here. It's just a bit so boring. I don't even want to go into the, all the foibles of it. I'm going to save that up for another week or two. And then I'm just going to absolutely unload. I'm going to go, you know, full Brendan Tarrant on it. But um, today we're going to talk a bit about uh, fashion icon Yves Saint Laurent. We're going to talk about amazing Japanese whiskeys. We're going to talk about microchipping Joe Biden so that um, he can find his way home or other people can find him. I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm thinking that... Uh, the technology that's in Apple's Find My Phone or Find Your Friends, if you have that app, could be used in Joe. And and Joe could actually have it in his own phone so he could find himself and find in where he is. I can't wait for the presidential debates. Oh, my God. Rivers of pleasure are just rushing over me in anticipation. Just wait till the Democratic convention next week when Joe Biden discovers who he has selected as vice president. He's going to be so excited and so surprised. Oh, he'll be amazed. And I think I'm going to take the tack that um, another wonderful artist named Richard Savage, who's a friend of mine, um, no relation to the Savage Club, but a Savage Club member, dubbed me as inspirational and delusional. You know, it's taken me 67 years to find myself. We're always on that long journey, that long journey, looking for ourselves. You know, like the Dalai Lama. If you've, some, if you've seen one Dalai Lama, you've seen them all. But looking for the center, the core, the Zen peace, the home of the soul. Inspirational and delusional. I really like that. Thank you, Richard. And I do have to credit him with that because, you know, credit where credit is due. And um, a little bit of a call out. Yesterday was International Left-Handed Day. So a nice shout out to our left-handed friends or fiends. Um, having a left-hander in the house is like having the Special Olympics every day of the week. A couple of famous left-handers over history. And, you know, in previous shows, I have shared some amazing facts about left-handers. We've had, you know, Ted Koppel from TV. In history, we've had Albert Einstein and Jack the Ripper and Napoleon Bonaparte, Jimi Hendrix, David Bowie, Spike Lee and James Cameron, Harpo Marx, Jean-Paul Gaultier, Val Kilmer, famous left-hander. He had to learn to shoot right-handed for the film Heat, because director Michael Mann wanted him to shoot right-handed just for his setups and, and shots. And they had very long, amazing, wild arguments about that. Val being um, a bit bit uh, boneheaded and uh, Michael Mann, the director, being a bit boneheaded. That's a great thing to uh, look at on the special DVD commentary of Heat also. Happy left-handers. So... Moving right along, um, do you live in New Hampshire? I don't know if I have any listeners in New Hampshire. I couldn't see the little dot on the analytics. But if you live in New Hampshire 
and you are working in Boston, Massachusetts, of course you know that your payroll tax is paid in Massachusetts, and the state of Massachusetts makes a bit of money there. But what is an interesting anomaly since all of this lockdown, and uh, this is from the Boston Globe, quite an amazing article that um, has implications all around the U.S. and perhaps in some other countries too, is a lot of people mass in to Massachusetts right across the border from New Hampshire. But now with the lockdown, they're working from home. So they're living in New Hampshire. They are not traipsing into Boston or Massachusetts, not paying tolls, not crossing bridges, not setting foot in the state. But yet the state of Massachusetts or Commonwealth of Massachusetts is still deducting payroll tax as if they were there on site. And the gist of payroll tax is that it is taxed on the person that earns the money in the state where he or she performed the work, not necessarily where they are employed, which is, of course, an interesting scenario with all of this telework and remote work and things like that. So we're going to follow that. It's just an article that really interests me quite a bit. It's also interesting because New Hampshire doesn't have a payroll tax. And uh, just kind of thinking of some of the quotes that you've had in just the first, you know, few minutes here, um, you know, 11 months here, 11 years going to Rome, um, episode 21, um, 11 months with Duolingo, things like that. Do you notice all the symbology, the numerology, either 11s or 1s and 2s, that's ever present this week too? So if you are a gambler, take your life savings, go to the casino, if you have a casino near where you live, or go online, and put it all on either 1s or 2 or 11 or 22 or your local lottery ticket. Just go for it because it's good to take a risk now too. Just kidding, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> I just saw people, you know, grabbing their credit cards and, and reaching for the phone. They're just kidding. But no, those numbers are coming up. I think you'll see them come up a lot this week. It is kind of a spooky, superstitious kind of, kind of week. Um, exacerbated by watching a show on TV um, about the a documentary about the EAR, the East Area Rapist of Sacramento, and uh, the 50 rapes he committed and everything else. And uh, I've been having nightmares on this, and we've only watched a couple of episodes right now. It's really freaking me out. Most of these shows, this, this is a, a documentary that's based on the late wife of uh, comedian Patton Oswalt who did this research. She was an author and a researcher, and it is one of the creepiest things I've ever, ever seen. And I'm a guy, and it freaks me out. Anyway, we'll talk more about that later on after I've seen the whole series, but totally engaged in that right now. It's called I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara, and it's an HBO series. And something I am not enthralled with and I, I rarely call out things that I don't like, but um, under massive disappointment, I just suffered through the two hours and 39 minutes of doctor sleep. 
the sequel. Dr. Sleep talked about it for the people that watch it. Sequel of Stephen King's The Shining, one of his finest stories. There, there again is another uh, artist I wouldn't want to have at my house because he's got TDS level six. But uh, I love Stephen King books. And Stephen King's book on writing is a must for anyone who's considered writing and explains a lot of his greatness in writing. One of the greatest writers of our generation. But uh, the Stanley Kubrick film, The Shining, one of the, the, a horror epic. And I, I, I must say, when I first saw The Shining, when it came out, um, I didn't think it lived up to the book. But after multiple, multiple revisits, of course it does, and unbelievable performances from Jack Nicholson and um, Shelley. What's her name? I hate to stop and have to look this up. Shelley, whatever her name was. I'll think of it. Shelley Duvall. Anyway, this Doctor Sleep is the alleged sequel. And it was created and directed by Mike Flanagan and written by him. Now, Mike Flanagan had about a half a dozen mediocre films. Absentia, Oculus, Hush Before I Wake, Ouija, Origin of evil, not bad, and it kind of seemed pretty average, a little bit horror hack bit, but he created, directed, produced, and wrote the Netflix supernatural horror series Haunting of Hill House, based on Shirley Jackson's novel of the same name, and that is stand-alone amazeballs. So it was like he practiced on all these things before he did Haunting of Hill House. Un- Believable, unbelievable, and uh, he missed the boat with Doctor Sleep. There's kind of an homage to Stephen King's novel and a couple of good bits that are, you know, reprised from The Shining. But there's like about 22 minutes of material stretched out over two hours and 39 minutes. It was painful. It made me angry. I was sitting on the sofa watching it, and just when something would happen, then it would go into this oh, unbelievable exposition for like hours and hours and hours. But anyway, I forgive him. I did love Ewan McGregor in it, and uh, it had some moments, but I thought it was pretty painful, pretty painful anyway. So I'm advising you not to spend the time. Watch the first 10 minutes and watch the last 10 minutes since it's going to be free on your cable station anyway. He's not going to be losing any money on it. So um hope he won't be angry. I don't know. I don't know him. That's why I had to call out Haunting of Hill House, how wonderful it is, because he could say, oh, geez, why did he pan my movie? Well, he did say wonderful things about my series. It's kind of like being in the military. Build them up, break them down. 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 Good cop, bad cop. Good cop, bad cop. Now, something... Related to this whole conversation, um, especially the um, American Horror Story type haunting uh, adaptation. The original Haunting is a 1963 British horror film that was adapted from the amazing novel by Shirley Jackson, The Haunting of Hill House. Now, that's a black and white film, not to be confused with the rather shocking 1999 remake from John DeBont, 
with Liam Neeson, Lily Taylor, Catherine Zeta-Jones, and Owen Wilson. But this 1963 film had the astonishing Julie Harris, Claire Bloom, Richard Johnson, and Russ Tamblin. And it is, well, Martin Scorsese calls it number one on his 11 scariest films of all time. And it is 100% one of the top scariest films of all time that I've ever seen. And especially because a couple years after it was shot, it was on the TV movie of the week on Channel 9 in Sioux City, Iowa, um, where I grew up in about 1965. So I was 12. We just moved to a new house, big house, big house that the parents built on Pelletier Drive. And it was also, markedly, the first night I'd been left alone on my own while they went out. Uh, my older brother, who would have babysat or we would have had a babysitter, my brother was at university, uh, no babysitter, parents left me alone, I figure I'll watch this movie. And of course, the scariest fucking film in the history of God, I've never seen a film like this, and I'm alone, and I'm in a giant new house, so I don't know any of the sounds in the house. And it's windy and raining and howling and like a you know a stage 17 tornado outside. I freaked the fuck out permanently. I was so scared. Um, I was gripping the dog in uh, our dog in a death grip the whole time, just so I'd have somebody to hold on to. And running around the house, every squeak and bang, and you know, trees hitting the window and stuff like that. By the time my parents came home, I was so bug-eyed and freaked out. I, I was scarred for life. I will never forget that experience. If you haven't seen that original film, it still holds up. The performances and the visuals and everything are amazing. It is a cross between the supernatural and the metaphysical. And Robert Wise's use of <clears throat> experimental lenses like the anamorphic lens and putting ceilings on all the sets to make it very claustrophobic was fantastic. Dolly's being used on the staircase going down, uh, things that have never been done before. And uh, also, when you're a kid, you don't pick that up, but Claire Bloom's overtly lesbian character, which um, in a 1950s film was, you know, pretty out there. As a kid, I never picked up on it until I was really, you know, about 30 and watched it the third time ago. Oh, that's been interesting. I never noticed that before. Um, and it's far more overt than it was in the novel. Um, it's a great film. It's a great film on all levels. Anyway, there's so much good stuff on TV and and films that are out online right now that it it just it just disappointed me. Especially because we found an unexpected treat that we're in the middle of. We're watching a Netflix series called Dead Wind, which my wife discovered, and uh, it's Finnish, as in from Finland not the dishwashing detergent, but uh, it's amazing. And I always come into those things like I did with Money Heist. Oh, it's foreign. It's going to be subtitled. It's going to be dubbed. Actors I've never heard of. Finland failed sociological experiment. But from the first 15 seconds, from the first opening shot, totally into it. It's crime drama. It's got some really ridiculously good-looking and very intriguing characters in it and um oh, i'm we're just took we're just took dead wind i don't know how to, to find it in the u.s or 
or or UK if um, it's distributed on Netflix there. It's Netflix here in Australia, but definitely search it out. That's that's a real winner. And I guess I have kind of a bad habit of saying, oh, you find it in the US or the UK when we have listeners in 20-odd countries now. I don't know where to find those things in Italy or Malaysia or Hong Kong or Canada or things like that. I know you have Netflix in many, many countries. So to all you listeners out there, I'm not ignoring you, although my primary audience has been the U.S., the U.K., and Australia. And uh, I'm thinking of you in your own networks there. Don't, don't feel like you're being ignored. We're spreading the love. We're spreading the love. I care just as much about my listener in Dayton, Ohio, as I do my listeners in Beverly Hills. Actually, I don't. I hate Dayton, Ohio. I stayed at the Marriott there on an ill-fated advertising program years ago. (sighs) The worst hotel I've ever stayed at in my life. Horrible experience. But I know a lot of Ohioans that are wonderful people. Um, John Glenn, he went in the space. That's the one. And my one listener there, whoever you are. So I'm serious. Enjoy. Now, for the next 20 minutes, I'm going to treat you to the interview with Richard Payne. If you're an aspiring artist, a new creative, you're going to hear a couple things that will blow your mind and set you on the path. And if you're an experienced, mega, erudite, uber god of art, you will love this take on the metaphysical and the science of painting. So uh, without further ado, this will take about 20 minutes of your time. Enjoy. So um, I'd like to introduce a guest to the Way It Is podcast. He's, he's only our second live guest in history. And of course, history takes us back all the way to March of this year. And that's Richard Payne. Richard Payne I met as a friend uh, before I found out that he was a classically trained Australian artist. He was born in 1957, so he is four years younger than me. Uh, but looks the same age, basically, and has works hanging in collections globally. Payne regards art as a physical gateway to the transcendental, bringing us closer to the divine. And we shared an amazing, amazing journey through a book that he recommended to me that I'll talk about in the show notes. His art explores beauty, energy, and the spiritual journey. And recent works include a 6.5 meter, that's about... 22 feet for those of you overseas, 6.5 meter painting with augmented reality for a corporation and a 30 meter virtual sculpture with soundscape at the Arts Center Melbourne. He studied architectural drafting at RMIT University, then classical realism at the Florence Academy of Art in Italy. Payne combines traditional media with virtual and augmented reality judges art exhibitions, and teaches master classes in Florence, USA, and Melbourne. And I met him at the Melbourne Savage Club, which we have discussed on previous episodes. Welcome, Richard. Thank you very much. It's, How are you today? Very good. Very good. It's good to um, to hear your voice again. Likewise. And our, our listeners don't know that this is really the 11th hour of the recording, the first 10 hours and 58 minutes. We're trying to get the technology on this right from both of our ends. We're both such technical gurus, Bobby. Exactly, exactly. Richard, how is isolation, self or imposed isolation, for you up there in the, up there in the hills? 
Well, um, as, as you know, I'm about an hour and a half out of Melbourne on a country property with my studio. So basically it hasn't made any difference at all to me. Okay. <laughs> where, where, whereabouts is it for people listening overseas that might not know Melbourne so much? Um, it's Dalesford. So it's about one and a half hours um, north of, um, of Melbourne, and um, it's quite rural. It's, it, Dalesford is a tourist town, essentially. So it's like a little European village. It's, it's as close as you can get to a European village in Australia, I think. And it's home of that beautiful place, the Lake House. It is Beautiful views and fabulous food at the lake. Beautiful, um, Richard. We met. We met at the at the Savage Club, and um, um, a bit of love of art there. And you shared a book with me, the Kandinsky book, which really blew blew me away. Uh, does did that book play a, a big part of your your life, or when when did you do you discover that book? yourself um well I, I discovered it when i was studying art and um, I, I read it and didn't understand a word of it not a word and so then um as my art career sort of progressed i kept on going back to it and going back to it and um, the last time um i read it, it everything sort of clicked into place for me and it just totally changed my my life and the way I sort of approached art. Fantastic. And that and that book, can you share the name of that book for our listeners? Uh, it's Concerning the Spiritual and Art with um, by Vasily Kandinsky. Uh, Fantastic. It was it was really a um, it was an it is an incredibly important um, paper that Kandinsky wrote and had an enormous amount of impact when it came out and was really coming to grips with what abstract art is and what art really is and what art can be as well. And I think that's that's very important to what, what art can be because a lot of people that aren't in the art world like yourself or that aren't creatives per se like um, myself in, in, in film and television might say, oh, the art world, and they immediately think, you know, Van Gogh, the Mona Lisa, you know, and you know they're they're not interested. But can can you imagine a world without the arts? No, no visual, no music, no Chiron, no uh, no billboards, no signage, no sound, no nothing. A world without the arts is a, a is a world devoid of life. Uh, it would be very much so because I think art is that um, that sort of pinnacle high level of high culture. But art is part of every human being. It's part of our soul, art and beauty. And you know, pretty much everybody on the planet um, likes their clothes to look nice. They like their hair to be in a particular way. When they move into a, a house or a room or, or a shanty, whatever it may be, pretty much every human being on the planet tries to make it look nice. And that's really an appreciation of art and aesthetic and, and, a, and an acknowledgement that our surroundings and beauty really impact our soul and we want to feel comfortable. So in doing that, we, um, we make ourselves comfortable in our space and we're also saying to the outside world, this is who I am. And oh, very good. It's an artistic expression. 
This this is who who I am and who I am at that at that time. I was just reading an an interview with Mickey Mancuso, who um, curates art and fashion, and he's talking about you know looking at old pictures and seeing a shirt and going, oh my god, how could I have worn that shirt back then, or how did I have that painting on my wall back then? But that is the time travel of where your head was at that that time in the universe that you resonated with it at that time. That, that's correct. That's correct. And, um, you know, that's, um, that art that you put out there, um, and that can be the colour of your car or the colour of your donkey if you don't have a car, and other people see that and they're attracted to you or not. And so that sort of expression of who we are outwardly starts building social groups. But can I order a donkey with with various options? Can I get a spoiler on a donkey? Oh, definitely for you, for you. And I think I think they have them in um, in all sorts of colours. I'm sure. Okay, if I can get fuchsia or puce, I'm in. I mean, I, I I'm ready for my 2020 donkey on the road. No, no more the pay, no more hay. Well, I think I saw a donkey like that last time I was um, testing. Leaving the club. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I did. <laughs> yes, and we'll be interviewing him next week. And that former member is no, but uh, when wh- can you remember the first time a piece of art actually blew you away? Something like like for me, it's it's more movies. I remember movies as a child that just absolutely, um, you know, magnetized me and said, "I I have to go towards this particular to this particular pole." Do you what what art? influenced you early that you thought, wow, this is me, this resonates with me, this is me in another lifetime, in another body. Um, What was that? That would have been um, after studying classical art and um, which is wound up with classical realism and really um, producing realistic art as of, you know, days gone by and spending a lot, virtually a lifetime learning composition and perspective and all of, all of that sort of stuff and being told by all of my teachers and mentors that, you know, realist art is the way to go. The piece that really floored me was Jackson Pollock's Blue Poles. Wow. It was like it was from another planet and I stood in, this pl- in, in front of this enormous painting and I, as, a, as, a, as a young person I thought, yeah, well, it's 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 not realist it must be rubbish and i started throw the initial impact was so powerful on me i started throwing the knowledge that i had the classical knowledge and it was there bobby it was there um you know the proportions of the canvas the way he used color um the um the dominance the unity the harmonies and balances that he was using and the rhythms they were all there, they were all classical tools and classical principles. And then I can still remember it to this day, the thing that made me go, oh, was when I realised this guy didn't spend forever doing studies and drawings and everything like that to bring that piece into reality. He laid a big piece of canvas out on the ground, stuck a hole in the can or dipped a stick in the paint and dribbled it. Wow. And he did that in that full motion of almost a dance and he's produced something that you can that you can get down classically and subdivide and do all the classical knowledge. And how anybody from this planet could do that just blew me away. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. 
Wow. And and Blue Poles, which is um, historically known as number 11, 1952, is amazingly in our National Gallery of Australia. And in fact, in 1973, um, I did have to Google this real quick. I couldn't remember the price. We paid, we, Australia paid $1.3 million for it. And the gallery's director at the time, James Mollison, wasn't able to authorize purchases over a million. So the acquisition was approved by then Prime Minister Gough Whitlam, who decided, probably a bad decision, that the price should be made public because people lost their fucking minds that 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 much money was paid for a painting. Oh, they did. And now we realise it was such a good decision. A bargain. Yeah, a bargain uh, financially. Bargain. But also a bargain culturally because that was a painting that sort of brought all those things I was talking about, you know, to Australia. And that's what, that's where we really saw a... Um, a masterpiece of really cutting-edge art that really screwed with our brain over here, something chronic. So it's no, it's no wonder the, the general public had trouble coming to grips with it. It was, it, you know, there's a case where I said, this this is something astonishing. This this is on on a scale of like the trip to the moon and, and back, Apollo 11, or climbing Mount Everest or anything else in this field of art. This This is that level of accomplishment and price really isn't the factor this is here now where everyone can enjoy it or not enjoy it if they don't get it but um that it, it's available I, I thought the pollock movie which i can't believe came out in 2000 i can't believe it's 20 years ago uh ed harris really captured i don't know if you ma- managed to see it captured oh yeah he nailed it yeah, he just, you know, and usually movies about painters and artists are pretty boring, boring but that was fantastic. Mm. Yeah, uh, I, I agree totally. Ed, Ed Harris just did such an amazing job. He was Jackson Pollock. He was. <laughs> he absolutely was. Um, Willem Dafoe plays an excellent Vincent Van Gogh in a recent film that came out last year too. And the name suddenly escapes me, but um, he was absolutely amazing. But more importantly, on, on, on to your art, what, what are you working on right now? Are you in the midst of, of formulating something, working on something, um, uh, relaxing and not doing anything? Just uh, what, where, where are you at right now? Thou shalt not relax, Bobby. There's too, I know. Too much Never to relax. There's too much to do. Yeah, I'm working on a piece that's um, a, a commission for um, some people that are building a, quite a large house up in the mountains looking at Mount Buller. So um, for those international um, people, that, that's our sort of snow fields. And um, the piece is about dawn. It's a, it's a, the piece actually has quite a few layers to it. So it's a, it's a history it's an allegorical history of the um, of the two people who um, have commissioned the piece because they've, they've had quite a rough life and come together later in life and um, built themselves a fabulous oasis up there and um, a lovely, lovely lifestyle now. So the painting is dealing with that very allegorically. So um, on the is it a is it a large piece? Is it a um, compact? It's not. It's not overly large. It's about um, three and a half meters by two meters, I think. Okay. So um, it's a it's, re- it's a reasonable scale. It's enough to be able to do something, and it's abstract. So on the left hand side is um, some abstracted um, 
cherry apple blossoms actually. And yeah. um, as you float across the, the, the apple blossoms, float in front of an abstracted dawn, which is symbolising the dawning of their, their new relationship and their new life. Wow. And then, okay. then over the top of that I'll overlay augmented reality. Ooh, and what what type? Was there something that you can share that will be meaningful for listeners as far as augmented reality? Um, probably not. So well, augmented reality, the way I use it, is that um, you have your smartphone and there's an app on there, and when you hold your, hold your smartphone up to the painting, the, the app recognises it and puts a layer of, of um, three-dimensional painting and graphics and animation all onto the front of that painting. So wow. it's it's sort of like a, a wow. it's an interdimensional layer, if you like, that's that's sitting there in the painting, but you only can access that through the app. That is astonishing. That that is astonishing. And um, like I say, no no rest for the the wicked. When you're not physically and how how long will this project take you from go the woe actually the actual work and not the thinking of it but the actual work the actual work tends to go down fairly quickly for me typically so um there'll be a couple of weeks and that will go that's that's pretty good that's kind of like me with, with a script i'll think about it for six months and then i'll bang it out in about a month but um ultimately i'll tell people it'll it'll take six to nine months before you know it's all done and polished and things like that um do you think there's such a thing as bad art? Do you think there's some would say, oh, that's that shitty? Do you think all art is subjective, or do you think there is there just really some bad art out there? Is there anything that really shits you when you see it? Um, that's an excellent question, Bobby. You should be an interviewer, you know. Well, I, you know, this is my, you know, sedentary. Uh, I'm actually wearing a mask while I'm interviewing you because I'm worried about, you know, woo flu over the internet. So this this is something I can do sitting in a dark room with a with a flask and a mask. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, um, well, on on your question, some art is like listening to somebody talking to you through a mask, where some art mumbles, and you really you know it's English. And you know they're saying something, but you just can't get, get you can't understand what they're saying. So mm. I think a lot of art today, when you look at it, you think to yourself, well, what, what is it saying? Why does this thing exist? And, uh, you know, some, some art, um, so, so like Banksy, Banksy's work, it, if you, and we can have a whole discussion about whether Banksy's work is art or not. Mm. But with Banksy's work, he makes one statement. It's more, it's more a sign or, um, you know, a graffiti sort of thing. He makes one statement, which is great. At least he's saying something. And, yep. and you get that very clearly. But it's monodimensional. There's no, there's no further layers. Yeah, and there's no subtext. There's no dis- further discussion of it. And his, his celebrity... I think has so eclipsed everything. Um, he he has managed to be embraced by the digital world, the Instagram world, and social media world, and and thus he could you know you know pee in a cup and throw it against the wall in a stencil, and you know it'd be you know ten million dollar genius at this point. Yeah, yeah, and that's um, exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
that does work. I don't like to dismiss things that I don't like as as bad. If I don't get them, if if someone has really put their heart and soul into it, or or done something really amazingly well, even if it's fundamentally simple, um, you got to give them the achievement. If it if it speaks to somebody, if one person laughs, the joke's funny. If one person loves it, the art's beautiful. Beautiful. It's 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 a tough one, but it it is such a world of Manila mediocrity in much of the arts. Yeah, I would would agree with that because for me um, it's articulate art that I'm really interested in and that's art that actually says something. And And that you can't get out of your mind. You see it or look at it or experience it and it sticks with you for for weeks and you think of it every day and then it's just part of your subconscious for the rest of your life. That's right. That's right. And that art is made by somebody who – is a skilled craftsperson, and they can and they've got a thought, and they can communicate those thoughts through just that art object, and they can communicate it in a way so that a viewer can see it and understand that image without a meta narrative. And I think that's that's really important with art. And then- fantastic, Richard. In 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 closing the interview, and we'll we'll keep chatting afterwards. Is there one thing I've got listeners in twenty countries? I can boast now. I have listeners in twenty countries, and um, I don't know what age they are, but I would imagine a lot of them are younger people in the arts, just by virtue of uh, the genre of people I reach. If you had one piece of advice to give somebody who is starting off as an artist and has the passion, whether they're an old person or a young person, but they're starting off their journey now in the art world, what's, you know, 60 seconds or less, what would you tell them as the most important advice that you got from a mentor? It would be to learn to draw and learn to paint, the the craft of drawing and painting, because that's the vocabulary that you're going to be using, and that's what Kandinsky was talking about, that vocab. And once you can draw and paint anything, it totally frees you, and then you can become expressive. I think oh, but far, too, far too often um, artists, young artists, jump straight into abstract art or really, really technically difficult art, and they don't, and they don't actually have the visual um, language to be able to um, cope with that. So definitely start by learning to draw and paint. Great. Fantastic. Richard Payne, thank you for your generosity. Um, I will have pictures of you and some some of your work, if possible, in the show notes. I'm going to hit stop here and, and continue the chat with you. Thank you so much for being a guest. You're welcome. I really enjoyed it, Bobby. Cheers. Wow. How amazing was that? He enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I absolutely loved it. And I hope you enjoy it, too. This guy is amazing. And the Kandinsky book is a great purchase. That's a fantastic book, too, or audio book, however however you enjoy things. Um, Oh, no, he's going to take time away from the podcast to listen to an audio book. That's okay. This is not a zero-sum experience. My life is not a zero-sum game. I don't have to propel my fame, fortune, ego, whatever, at the expense of of anyone else. I love to recommend anything and everything out there that uh, brings joy and education to the, to the universe and really can't be bothered with people that don't give recommendations or information or names or phone numbers or connections stuff because they think 
it's going to take away from them. Oh, I don't want, I don't, I don't want their success taken away from my success. How, how can anyone else's success possibly take away from your success? That is so small-minded. That is such stinking thinking if, if you're running your, your life like that, in my opinion. So, you finally arrived. What the hell are you wearing? It's my ass-kicking outfit, bitch! Wow, is it that time already? Well, speaking of zero-sum games and competition and jealousy, jealousy, the fashion industry, what am I wearing? What's your podcaster wearing? Well, today I've got a bit of a new treat, a lockdown treat. It is a black St. Laurent hoodie with the Majorelle Garden logo on it, the Jardin Majorelle. And for those of you that don't know, the Jardin Majorelle is a two-and-a-half-acre botanical garden and artist landscape garden in Marrakesh, Morocco. And it was originally created by the French Orientalist artist Jacques Majorelle over almost 40 years, starting in 1923. And it features a cubist villa designed by the French architect Paul Sinois in the 1930s. Now, most importantly to me, the property was the residence of the artist and his wife from 1923, Till the divorce in the 50s. And then in the 80s, the property was purchased by the fashion designers, Yves Saint Laurent, designer of my sweatshirt, and Pierre Berger, his partner, who worked to restore it. And today, the garden and villa complex is open to the public, and it houses a museum of Marrakesh and has recently opened the Yves Saint Laurent Museum. Now, interestingly enough, as a young aspiring painter, Jacques Majorelle was sent to Morocco around 1917 to convalesce from a serious medical condition. And after spending a short time in Casablanca, he traveled to Marrakesh and, like many of his contemporaries, fell in love with the vibrant colors and street life he found there. And traveling around North Africa and the Mediterranean, back when it was safe, he eventually decided to settle permanently there and con commissioned the architect, Paul Sinois, to design the villa. The, the gardens, if you look online, are absolutely amazing. When Yves Saint Laurent and Pierre Berger discovered it in the 80s, they set about restoring it and saving it. It was in huge disrepair. And it's just one of the most beautiful gardens and uh, palaces, so, so to speak. I'm a big fan of Yves Saint Laurent because he had an absolutely amazing life. He was born in 1936, and his actual name was Yves-Henri Donat, Mathieu Saint Laurent, which I didn't know until I did a little bit of research. But I, as you know, like to know what's behind any type of creation, whether it's a house or clothing or building materials or anything like that. He is regarded, Saint Laurent, as being among the most foremost fashion designers of the 20th century. And in 1985, Catherine Reynolds Milbank wrote, the most consistently celebrated and influential designer of the past 25 years. Yves Saint Laurent can be credited with both spurring the couture's rise from its 1960s ashes and with finally rendering ready-to-wear reputable. He was able to adapt his style to accommodate the changes in fashion during that period and approached fashion in a different perspective. He wanted women to look comfortable and elegant. He wanted men to look elegant and comfortable. He's also credited with having introduced the tuxedo suit for women 
and was known for being the first of using non-European cultural references and non-white models. He was quite quite a, a trailblazer back then for both men and women. However, during the 60s and 70s, Saint Laurent was considered one of Paris's jet set and was often seen nightly at clubs in France and New York City, such as Regine and Studio 54, and became a heavy drinker and frequent user of cocaine. When he was not actively supervising the preparation of a collection, he spent all of his time at the villa in Marrakesh, Morocco. And that is where he sat out most of the rest of his life. So this beautiful logo on the sweatshirt is like his favorite place in the world, and it kind of symbolizes all of his beauty and, and creativity. And it's an amazing, amazing logo that's on there. When St. Laurent died in 1980, his body was cremated and his ashes were scattered in Marrakesh in the Jardin Majorelle. His partner, Berger, said at the funeral service, quote, I know that I will never forget what I owe you. And one day, on that day, I will join you under the Moroccan palms. In 2009, Forbes magazine rated St. Laurent the top-earning dead celebrity of the year. Interesting fact. I enjoy that intro so much, and it had been my entertainment intro, but I'm not going to do any other entertainment news. I'm going to do Today in History, but I just kind of like that song, so we're going to use that as a little bit of a segue here. History today is a bit odd. Normally, there's just a myriad of things to choose from, but uh, I just chose just chose a half a dozen of the ones that really kind of fit the vibe of the week, and the first one 1908, on this day in 1908, the very first beauty contest in the world was held in Folkestone, England. What a good time that must have been, especially nowadays that, you know, you can't even have beauty contests, you can't have swimsuit competitions. You know, it's about being an all-around nice person. Well, what's what's wrong with beauty? We, we look for beauty every day, whether it's in art or men or women or beautiful acts or generosity or whatever. But uh, let's just get to good old-fashioned beauty. No one ever has an ugly contest. They, they do in the pet world. I've seen the ugly cat and the ugly dog contest. That's a bit subjective because a lot of people say that the sphinx cat always wins that ugly cat thing. And I think sphinx cats are kind of cool. Well, all cats are cool. Anyway, just a bit of history there. Call out to the folks in Folkestone, England. In 1945, VJ Day. If you don't know what VJ Day is, you're probably a millennial. That was Victory Japan Day, when Japan surrendered unconditionally to end World War II. That was technically also August 15th, depending on your time zone. 1947, Pakistan gained independence from Great Britain. And I'm sure when Great Britain said, you are free, it's all yours, they said, oh, by the way, in about maybe 60 or 70 years, why don't you send your worst people to the UK and, um, you know, start grooming children and um, blowing up buildings and um, stabbing soldiers on the street. Uh, we'd appreciate that, just, just, just so that we can keep in touch. 1967, Bonnie and Clyde was released, directed by Arthur Penn, 
with Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway. If you've seen her lately, it's Faye Dunaway. She's changed her name by Deadpool. I love that film. That was one of the first mega violent films I ever saw. And I just wanted to be Warren Beatty. He looks so cool. Absolutely. 1969. The Brits, they're back. The British Army deploys on the streets of Northern Ireland. Perennial pests. Marking the beginning of Operation Banner. 1995. A sad day. This is the day in 1995 that Mickey Mantle, the Mick, one of the greatest baseball players of all time, died. Now, this beautiful summer day in the U.S., in reminding myself of baseball, I used to have quite a baseball card collection when I was a kid. Uh, I know that if you're from other countries, you might not know the importance of this, but collecting rare baseball cards as a child in the U.S. or even as an adult was a currency that was invaluable, getting you friends and trading them, you know, depending what team they were on and what year and what the pose was. And it came with Topps Bubblegum, one of the early, early sell-through deals with um, celebrities, so to speak. And uh, Topps paid those guys a lot of money, paid those guys, guys. There were no women in baseball back then, okay? Guys. Sorry, ladies. Now, I had quite a baseball collection, but when I went out to University of Colorado, I put it in a bunch of boxes and it went in the closet and, and into infinity. Well, it was maybe about maybe about 1990 that I suddenly started to see all these baseball card collections going for quite a bit of money on the internet. And uh, I remember seeing Bob Costas, the sports announcer, talking about his massive baseball collection of cards that his mother had thrown out worth maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now, mine wouldn't have been worth near that, but it would have been a prodigious collection because I was quite a collector, also of stamps and coins, which I cashed in and, and sold and bought things with. But uh, I remember calling my mom, saying, you remember that those boxes, all those boxes that we had of all those baseball cards and stuff like that? And before I could even finish the sentence, she said, oh, yeah. I threw all that trash out years ago. I threw all that trash out years ago. Something I have to address next time I see her. Birthdays, Magic Johnson, Los Angeles Lakers superstar and philanthropist, 61 years old today. And uh, if you've seen the Michael Jordan documentary, on Netflix, probably thinking, why not a Magic Johnson documentary? Well, Showtime and, of course, Showtime Network, Magic Johnson's name used to be Showtime, is doing a feature series on him. So you just wait on that. And today would have been Alfred Hitchcock's birthday. Good evening. Now, just a bit of news around the world, sadly, very sadly, over in the UK, over in Bloichi, it is now official, the UK's worst quarterly fall in output since records began. It's now official. At 7 a.m. yesterday, it was confirmed the UK has crashed into a deep recession. The Office for National Statistics released figures showing the coronavirus, Wu flu, thank you China pandemic, sent the economy plunging by a record 20.4% between April and June, leaving it as the world's worst hit major economy. 
absolutely shocking. And in the U.S., in the U.S., it's hard to predict what's going to happen in deference to that 20th century Danish proverb, predictions are hard, especially about the future. I do think it's possible to look at major trends, at least to have a sense of direction. This is from Simon Black and also Sovereign Man. Economist. If, if you want to understand where things are going, just kind of take a look at everyone's priorities the past couple months. Just something to think about over the next couple weeks. Most governments' woo-flu responses are the obvious example. The economic destruction they've created is staggering. Tens of millions of people unemployed. Countless businesses gone bust. Trillions of dollars of wealth wiped out. Now, in the first wave in the U.S., back in March, they shut down the economy to protect us from the virus. Then they opened up again. But shock horror, the virus was still here. What a surprise. Shutting down the economy didn't eradicate a virus. So what did a lot of these people do when the second wave hit? And it's happened here in Australia, uh, here in Victoria, over in New Zealand, where they had two cases this week. They start shutting down the economy again. So Simon Black shares, if it didn't work the first time, let's, let's keep trying the same approach and expect a different result. That's genius. Or as they like to say, insanity. Same approach, expect a different result. This is clearly economically destructive. But again, economic prosperity is no longer the priority. All that matters is force-feeding people a false sense of security. Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York probably captured this mentality, or lack thereof, the best when he said back in May, quote, we don't want to lose any lives, any lives to reopen the economy. We'll figure out the dollars. We'll figure out the economic impact, but we'll protect people in the meantime and we'll protect their health, end quote. This is total bullshit. The sad reality is that lives are lost all the time, all the time in the normal course of economic activity. In New York City alone, Several workers died during the construction of the Freedom Tower. The Freedom Tower is the building, the gorgeous memorial that replaced the World Trade Center. Plus, there were dozens of life-altering injuries like spinal fractures and paralysis. The government knew the tower's construction would likely cost human lives, but they approved the construction permits regardless, factoring in that they knew the benefit would outweigh the human cost. Similarly, over 100 people died constructing the Hoover Dam in the 1930s. The government knew people would die. But the benefit, the benefit outweighed the cost. Today, there can be no discussion of cost or benefit. There's just one priority, and it's no longer economic prosperity. Currently in the U.S., just do the math here, taxes account for $1.4 trillion dollars. The U.S. gets in $1.4 trillion from everyone paying taxes. The Green New Deal that AOC and Biden and now Kamala Harris and everything are espousing is complete the complete elimination of fossil fuel technology, free everything, free university, waiving of student loans that will cost $93 trillion over 15 years. $93 trillion over 15 years. Over that same 15-year period, 
the U.S. will only get $22.5 trillion in tax income, but with 2 million fewer jobs that will, of course, dwindle when there are no fossil fuels. So let's do the math. $93 trillion out, $22.5 trillion maybe in. How is that going to be handled? You don't need a calculator for this. Any fourth or fifth grader can do this with crayons and figure out the math. It's not going to work. Now, counter with what the Republicans plan to do, which is to gradually, very gradually, phase out fossil fuel construction over 35 years, and no free university, no waiving of student loans, none of that. And people say, oh, that's just un-American, that's just, you know, capitalist, that's just racist. Well, it is how the, the U.S. was built. Capitalism and then assistance for those that can't. You can't just wave off all these student loans. What about all the people that, you know, hocked their house and, and worked and worked and worked for decades to send their kids to school? What about them? Did they just, oh, too bad, everybody else gets it for free. Just a little something to, th- to think about. I've been urged to show both sides, and I'm trying to show you both sides of the coin. Now, a couple of quick shout-outs this week. One of them is to Danny, the amazing TNT driver. We had a uh, mirror coming from my office, and it was a bit of a convoluted delivery situation. Anyway, when uh, he got here the other day, um, he was very grateful and very conversational about how the directions made his life easier in what is a normal nightmare for these guys having to find places and weird gates and entrances, entrances and stuff like that. And I really appreciate them. Absolute pro. Federal Express used to be like that years ago, years ago when they started, but now uh, TNT seems to be tops. Shout out to Danny. And also Mayu Yamamoto, who's the barista up the street at Super Random, where is uh, one of my favorite coffee shops, My Morning Especial. And um, she's returning to her homeland, Japan, um, since, of course, Japan has surrendered. VJ Day. No, that was 60 years ago, 70 years ago. We, we forgive you. Uh, no, she's a lovely lady and an amazing barista, and she'll be missed by everyone in Brighton and hope she is well in Japan. Now, one last thought. 365 days ago this morning, I was out on my morning walk, my morning constitutional. My wife and I take, as you know, almost every morning, rain or shine, wind, hail, tornado, cyclone, whatever. And we went on an unusually early walk that morning. And it was raining. It was windy. It, it was not my favorite morning to be out on a walk. I usually try and bail out on those. Anyway, we're walking down the street and walking towards the beach. And my phone rings. It's not even light out yet. It's just, you know, pre-dawn, very early for us. And we're trying to be careful not to trip over trees and things like that. And so I think, oh, Jesus, who's calling me? And I look at the phone. It's my in my pocket. Pull it out in the park of pain in the butt. And that's my son, Steve, in the U.S. I thought, geez, he knows time differences. Um, he wouldn't call it this hour. I'll just let it go to voicemail, and I'll call him back. Because it's so windy and howly, I wouldn't have been able to hear him anyway because I'm half deaf in the wind. Anyway, about two minutes later, rings again. I let it go to vo- voicemail, and then my wife's phone rings and it's Steve by this time I've got that horrible feeling in my stomach that you get when you know 
a call is not going to be good news, but have no idea what it is. And I had suspicions what it was, but um, not when my wife handed me the phone and my son Steve told me quite succinctly that his brother, my oldest son Chris, had died suddenly in Sioux City at age 40. He was going out to a baseball game with his kids on a hot August day and fell to the ground, tried to get up and fell and never got up again. And I don't remember anything really after that. And I don't remember much about going to Sioux City for the funeral or the lucid dream of being in Sioux City and trying to manage everything. But here a year later, 365 days later, I can't say I'm really any closer to figuring it all out. I'm a, I'm a solver. I'm a fixer. I always try and look at what the problem is and solve it and find the brightness in it, find the, find the good side uh, and fix it. And I've been looking for a year trying to find out the reason or at least the how and have not. And I don't expect to and thought it would get a lot easier, but um, from time to time, it does not. So just a shout out to a wonderful boy who was a real fighter, a a real genuine fighter, MMA fighter, and an amazing father, and an amazing son, and an epic brother. I know my son Steve and the whole rest of the family miss him greatly, and his widow Bonnie, and of course the kids. So... I know this woo flu thing gives me the shits and I know that the earth will continue the spin and turn around. And I know that Chris is probably looking down there and saying, don't worry about things. They'll all fix themselves. And he would have a good view from up there. I believe he would have a most marvelous view from up there. I hope. And I think if I've figured anything out over the, the year to borrow some words. I think what, what we know is a drop and what we don't know is an ocean. And seeing death at the end of life is like seeing the horizon as the end of the ocean. So I'm going to keep swimming, keep looking, and um, I know the earth will keep on spinning and I'll feel grateful, but I'll still keep searching. And perhaps one day we will all join each other for a last time under the Moroccan palms. Have a brilliant week. Have a great perspective. Thanks so much for listening.